Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. Brian Scudamore's enthusiasm for business and for life, frankly, is just contagious. He's one of those guys that makes me smile just by being in his presence. You know, sure, he's a successful entrepreneur, but he's also just this really good guy. He's naturally curious. He has this tremendous work ethic. And most importantly for today's episode, he has mastered a philosophy about failure that is very refreshing. In this presentation, Brian is going to share the origin story of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And that business is certainly a fascinating rags to riches story. But more than the company's journey, I encourage you to pay attention to Brian's entrepreneurial journey. He's very candid, and he has a lot to teach us about resilience, grit, optimism, and making really tough choices. Also, pay attention to his humility, especially in how he surrounds himself with other entrepreneurs to draw strength from and support from and to get ideas from them. I think that we'd all benefit from a tighter community of peers whom we could be totally candid and vulnerable with. That's actually something we try to foster with the gathering and the associations that our attendees make with each other there. So have a listen to Brian and then let's compare notes when he's finished talking. Thank you for having me. When, when uh, I talked to Ryan on the phone, also Mr. Enthusiasm, uh, the guy's got so much energy, it's amazing, and Chris, and they welcomed me to come speak. Most exciting part was to be in this room, not just speaking, but listening. I always believe if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I am humbled to be in this room with very brilliant, smart, passionate marketers. So thanks for having me. But listen, we're going to spend uh, half an hour today talking about some things that I'm passionate about, mostly under the term WTF. What that really means to me is willing to fail. I love failure, and I know that sounds strange, but I'm going to get you to think about failure for a moment. Think of your most recent failure. Go inside there, be honest with yourself, think of a failure. Now think of the, most, of the biggest flop you've ever had. We've all had them. It might not seem like a fun exercise, but what if I could shift your thinking today to have you realize, like me, that failure is, a, is just the best gift you can ever receive. My success has been anything but a straight line. I mean, I titled this today, 30 Years of Failure. And it's easy for people, I've heard this before, where they go, oh, look, Brian, you got a $400 million company. Easy to talk about failure and all the mistakes you've made now you know what, my company wouldn't be half of what it is, it wouldn't even still be around today if I didn't understand how to embrace failure as a gift. So let me take you back to the early days. Four and a half years old, 
My grandmother, who loved her so much, she was a mentor of mine. She was a small business owner, had an army surplus store in San Francisco where I was born. I moved to Canada at age seven. I would go to her and my grandparents' army surplus store every summer vacation, every Christmas holiday, because I loved to work in their store and experience what it was like to play the game of business. To me, it was a game. So when my grandmother passed away, I was 30 some odd years old and had to go into her house and kind of clean out things. And I found a binder of drawings and it said Brian's drawings. I used to love to draw as a kid and that's how my mom kept me quiet, give me some markers and some paper. And I find this and I actually remember drawing that. Who actually envisions themselves as a four and a half year old doing a self-portrait as a junk man and actually becomes one? Don't understand how that worked out, but true story. So there is about 20 some odd years later, I buy myself, I had $1,000 life savings. I bought a beat up old pickup truck for 700 bucks. I spray painted the sides, I ran out of red paint. So we <laughs> sort of took some artistic liberties and used blue. This was such a hunk of junk, this truck, that while it cost me 700 bucks, I spent $1,300 in repairs within the first two weeks. But let me just take you into this moment. I fast forward from the little kid portrait of myself to this. What was going on? Why the broken heart? A few years after this, I hit a million in revenue. I dropped out of high school, bought the truck, fund my way through college. I end up dropping out of college. And I remember I sat down with my dad and my dad's a liver transplant surgeon. So if you're gonna be a transplant surgeon, you better believe in college. My dad did more schooling than anyone on the planet. So for me to go, maybe I'm learning more running business by the vehicle that funded my college education than by actually studying in school. And I think I'm gonna make a big bold decision and drop out. So my dad's a rule guy, tough guy. And I sat down with him and I, I'm an optimist, I'm an energy guy. So I said, dad, I got some awesome news. He goes, I sit down. I said, I'm dropping out of university with a year left. I'm learning so much more about business running one versus studying it. And he said, how is that good news? He said, just finish your degree. And I said, you know what? This opportunity might not be there forever. I know you don't agree now, but hopefully you will one day. So I build the business. Uh, let's see, five years in, we're about a half a million in revenue. I grew it over the next couple of years to a million. Took us eight years to get to a million in revenue. That's not fast. People often look and they go, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, man, overnight success story. We do a million in revenue today, but it took us eight years to get to that first million. So what was the failure? What was my first sort of tough point? I joined EO, the entrepreneur organization. It used to be YEO. We all got older and they dropped the Y. Join EO and I go, okay. Um, I join and I'm like, I made a mistake. I immediately started as 26-year-old Brian comparing myself to other entrepreneurs around me. I don't recommend doing that. It's not a healthy thing to do. It was a mistake for me because I saw people had way more glamorous businesses than junk removal. They had, um, you know, they were smarter. They went to school. They had money. They had $10 million businesses, $100 million businesses. And I'm looking around going, look at me with this little company. So what EO taught me to do is when you are trying to solve a creative problem, what do we do? We take a retreat. You find somewhere inspirational. So I ended up retreating. I went to my parents' summer cottage. They had a, a dock, uh, kind of like this, maybe a little bit smaller. They had this dock on the water, and I sat down, and I pulled out a sheet of paper, and I said, 
I'm in a doom loop. I'm in a funk. If we go back to the broken heart, which I didn't explain, that time in my life, I was insecure comparing myself to others. I was plagued with panic attacks and anxiety for what reason, I don't know, stress. I realized I was no longer an entrepreneur and a creator. I was running a business and I was just a business owner. And my business and even part of me sort of lost the life and the sparkle. And it wasn't a fun time. And so I was no longer this, well, I still am an ADD, hyper crazy entrepreneur, but I was no longer a true entrepreneur. I was a business owner and I had to get myself out of that funk. So I sit down on the dock, just feels like a dock, so I'm gonna sit for a sec. I sit down on the dock and I pull out a sheet of paper, one page double-sided, and I said, stop the doom loop. You're born an optimist. Start thinking positively and creatively like you're used to. So I look at the sheet and I start writing out what the future will look like if I could only imagine pure possibility. I said, we'd be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003. We were in only one. We had beat up old trucks, maybe a little bit nicer than that at that point but top 30 cities, we'd be the FedEx of junk removal with clean, shiny trucks, friendly uniform drivers, on-time service, upfront rates. And I said, we'd even be on the Oprah Winfrey show. Now I was imagining crazy stuff. I mean, it really was nonsense, but the amazing thing for me, the power in creating a vision, and I didn't know I was doing this at the time, was it got me out of my funk immediately because I now had a purpose. I now had my why. Uh, Doug Atkin talked about it today. I mean, what's, what's your guiding force? It certainly was never money for me. I wanted to pay for college, but this was to take me out of my funk and give me a possibility of what I could build. I end up taking this painted picture and I give it, I print it up and I give it to a whole ton of people I know, friends, family, and all my coworkers. And I said, have a read, what do you think? And there were literally two camps, one camp, that said, Brian, I don't know what kind of hope dope you're smoking, but this ain't gonna happen. And the second camp said, wow, this is really exciting. Can I be a part of this? Can I be, as an EO member, a support to you? As a friend, can I support you in this dream? And as an employee, can I be a part of making this happen? We lost a bunch of employees in those early days because they didn't see themselves in my or our picture. And that was perfectly okay because we lost the people that didn't believe and they were the right people. So let me, let me start to share with you some of my favorite WTF moments, the failures I endured and the learning that's come as a result. Again, I am grateful and thankful for failures and I hope you can appreciate some of the stories I share with you that they really were moments that made us who we are today in our business. So number one, I, um, 1994, five years into the business, which would have been about two years after that. By the way, this was the front page of the Vancouver Province newspaper. We learned the power of free press. I called up the press and said, got a great story for you. Must've been a slow media day because they called us up and said, can we come out and send a photographer and a journalist and write a story? And boom, we ended up on the, on the front page, which was better than the $5,000 little ad that Ralph's Audio had in the top left-hand corner. Ours had our 738 junk phone number, the phone number at the time, all for free. So. My first failure, 1994, 500,000 in revenue. I felt pretty proud of what I built, but I stopped having fun. I was not having fun with the people I was working with. Why? They were the wrong people. They weren't my people. I didn't feel like they were friends. I didn't feel like we had stuff in common. They weren't the clean cut professionals that would help us build the FedEx of junk removal. So what did I do? I 
brought them all in. I like to move fast on things. And I brought them all in to a morning meeting. Nine bad apples, one spoils the whole bunch. There were 11 employees, so I brought all 11 in and I said, I'm sorry. Very first two words out of my mouth. I'm sorry, but I've let you down. This was a WTF moment like you've never seen or I've never seen. I failed because I, and I said this to them, I didn't bring on the right people. I didn't treat you right. I didn't give you the love and support that you needed to be successful. This isn't working. I don't know what else to do to get to my vision unless I start again. So I clean house and I learned that day, a company is all about people. We talk, all of us, passionately about brands. You know, I love Converse. I'm wearing my branded O2E Converse. I love brands, but brands are only as good as the people you have in your organization. Do they take care? Do the, does the brand take care of its people? Do the people take care of the customers? Because the customers will take care of the brand. So I learned that day that I had the wrong people, time to get them out and start again. Well, you can imagine going from a five truck fleet down to one, that's all I'm capable of driving at once. I got my big brick cell phone doing all the booking, the dispatch, the hiring. It was a nightmare. I still don't remember exactly how long it took, three months, six months to rebuild, but I started rebuilding by hiring people I wanted to be friends with. It fundamentally changed the culture of the company and things started to turn around. So we started to grow the business. I brought in, I franchised in 1999. I looked at franchising as a model of hyper growth and as a model of involving owners who had skin in the game that would help us build something really special. We started getting some free press. We started getting CNN, Wall Street Journal, Oprah. These things that we had envisioned actually started to happen in the painted picture. And so what I did is I said, I need a COO. I can be so ADD that I need somebody who's got a little more discipline, a little more planfulness, who can really put processes in place and help us scale. So I brought on a guy, Cameron Harold, who uh, I was the best man in his wedding. We were pretty tight, good buddies. We knew each other from the EO organization. What do they say about friends, hiring friends? <laughs> don't do it. Uh, it's certainly a challenging thing and I don't recommend it. I believe in becoming friends with the people you hire, but when you start off with that friendship relationship, especially at the top, it makes it very difficult when you've got to make some tough decisions. So Cameron and I grew the company from 2 million to 106 million. Uh, by the end of 2003, we hit our painted picture. FedEx to junk removal, Oprah Winfrey, top 30 metros. We actually hit the top 30 metros with 16 days uh, leeway to our painted picture. Was it a fluke? Was it a crystal ball? We just recruited the right people and got them totally stoked about what we were building and being a part of it that they held us accountable to our own painted picture. I remember when we were at 28 of 30 metros, Lori Baggio, who's doing our franchise sales, said, we're missing these two metros. We've got you know, three months left. What are we going to do? It was Pittsburgh and Milwaukee. We made a plan. We started recruiting people from those cities, getting press in those cities, and the magic happened. We hit the painted picture. So the company was growing, 100 million in revenue, 106 million by the time Cameron left. I started to get stressed. I started to hear from our franchise partners and people on our team that Cameron and I were making rash decisions that this was no longer a speedboat. This was a big, or starting to be a bit of a ship. And we were still trying to turn on a dime. Cameron is also ADD, dangerous to have two ADD leaders at the top. Again, don't recommend it. Cameron is very fire ready aim like I am. I'd come back from a conference like this and say, oh, Cameron went to the gathering. I heard this and this and that. And he'd go off and do it. And we needed a little more 
uh, of a controlled pace to make things happen. So I had to sit down with Cameron and say, I hate to do this, but we got to part ways. Cameron and I are friends today, thank goodness, great friends and big supporters of each other. He's done more books than I've ever, I've written one, he's written four or five. He's done very well and he would tell you that this was the right thing for both of us. But what it taught me is the right thing is generally not the easy thing. What are the right things in our businesses, in our departments, our companies that we need to do that we're not doing that are holding us back? Cameron was holding us back. The team of Cameron and I were actually together holding things back. So I went out there. I'm going to give you WTF moment number three. And I'd say this was the most painful for me. A small company and firing 11 people is one thing, your entire workforce. We've got 500 plus people now. I remember back in 2007, 2008, around that 100 million in revenue mark. I don't have Cameron anymore, but I clearly need a COO. My franchise partners are telling me, WTF, you're not just willing to fail, Brian, you're failing because you can't lead this thing. And to hear that from your people that you've helped grow, that's a, that's a tough thing to hear, but I had to be open to the failures and listen and hear what they said because they were all saying it. So what did I do? I said, I got to recruit, got to get out there. I flew all over the country on all these planes trying to find my next leader. And I found a uh, ex-Starbucks president someone who wanted to move from Seattle back to BC, where they were from, I hit the jackpot. They had 30,000 people beneath them. This person was gonna come into my tiny little company and transform it. I fell in love with the pedigree of where this person came from. I love Starbucks, I love coffee. I thought this person's gonna be just a gold mine. So this person comes into my company and the first five months, I took my first big vacation. I went to Italy for five weeks. I totally disconnected from email. Everything was great. But between week five and about week 14, I started to see things weren't really great because this person did not work well with entrepreneurs. This person was very smart. This person's gone on to be incredibly successful and built something much bigger than 1-800-GOT-JUNK elsewhere. But this was the wrong leader for me. So there I am stressing about the fact that I feel disconnected to my people. This person had their own team in place now and it was just, it was scary. But I knew it wasn't working and I could see things that others in my company couldn't see. And when they say it's lonely at the top, try making a decision to get a leader out of your business who you and one of your board members are the only two people in the entire organization that think it's the wrong person and the wrong fit. So we get this person out 14 months uh, after bringing them in. The financial meltdown was happening in 2007, 2008. That didn't help, but that wasn't the cause of our decline. During that period, we had dropped 40 million in revenue. We had to lay off 52 people. Um, just horrible stuff. It wasn't fun, it was dark. And then there's me going to my franchise partners and saying, I've really, really failed here. They didn't care to hear what I had learned. I didn't even know what I had learned at that point. So I sit down with, uh, with myself, um, pull out another sheet of paper, and I say, self, what am I good at that a company needs to do? And I wrote down on the left-hand side all the things in the company that I'm good at, that I love to do. On the right-hand side of the paper, I wrote all the things that I'm bad at, that I don't like to do, and this was a laundry list. So I said, how do I find somebody 
to be my, I call it the two in the box model where two heads are better than one. How do you have a CEO and a COO who are joined at the hip? Because my previous failure, I had the wrong person for me. So I now had to understand what the right person would be. And so I took that list, created what I called the little painted picture of describing the person. And I was so clear in about three paragraphs of who I was looking for as the right COO for me and for our business, that when I put it out to my universe and my networks, I was on planes flying all over again. But what I still remember, which was really cool, I had three people not connected by any means, totally unrelated, three different people reached out and said, I read your painted picture of who you're looking for. There's only one person that describes, and that's Eric Church. If you're a country music fan, it's not that Eric. But Eric Church was named as the person. They didn't say Eric Church and, 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 and list other people and just give me five random names. They were convinced that I was so clear now what I was looking for that that was the person I should find. And I went out. Eric was gainfully employed, building a great company, but wanted more of an entrepreneurial life and wanted to be a part of what we were doing. So the, the failure was me with the previous COO, knowing that I wasn't the person to lead the business and getting rid of someone. What happened though, was that I filled, filled my heart literally, it's hard to look back to those days and feel how depressed I was. And there were days where I literally couldn't get out of bed and people in my company, my assistant would be calling. She's like, where are you? And I'd reply back, I don't know. I mean, it was just, you felt horrible, right? It's hard running a business, it's hard leading. They were dark, dark days, but what I ended up doing is shifted my heart to gratitude. Because Eric Church has been around seven years. If I didn't have the previous screw up with the previous leader, my screw up, I would never have really dove deeply into what I needed to find in the next leader. So to give you an idea of how things have changed with Eric, he came in at 100, just shy of 100 million in revenue in seven years. We'll finish this year at 444 million in revenue with four brands and just an amazing culture that we feel is so healthy and fun and we're taking care of people. The magic between he and I would not have happened if it wasn't for the previous failure. So I had to embrace it. And uh, an interesting little side story is I was up for an award for Entrepreneur of the Year through Ernst & Young a few years back and they had the Meet the Judges night. And so your application's in, you go meet the judges so they can see what's going on and whether you're, you qualify. My previous COO was one of the judges. So I'm like, okay, this one's toast. This isn't gonna happen. You can't win unless all of the judges unanimously vote. And we won that year, which told me that there was a level of forgiveness between both of us. And you know what? Everything works out for a reason. While you're in a failure, while you're in a dark day, you sit there and go, how? What? The question I ask myself, whenever I'm in a moment of failure, and there's been plenty, I know we don't have much time, but every time I've been in a failure, I say, what is one good thing that can come from this seemingly tough time? It's never let me down. My company has been a set of stairs and I'm climbing. Failure, success, failure, success. And you keep on climbing by learning. So those are my favorite, favorite failures. Um, I hope that I've helped you see that you can embrace failure and just take those moments to reflect and say, what do you learn? WTF to me also means if you're willing to fail, you've got nothing to lose. Reach out and ask for help. So I'm on a plane flying to New York for some other PR I was doing for the book launch. And I found some global head of Facebook and I sent a note to his Instagram. And I said, hey, Craig, 
you do some great stuff. I bet you know a lot of people in the press. By chance, do you know anyone you can introduce me to while I'm in New York? And he introduced me to some people, one of them being the chief digital officer for the NASDAQ, Josh. And he goes, oh, I'll set you up with Josh. Josh gets back to me. He goes, hey, we'd love to put your book on a, a big billboard in the NASDAQ all day. Are you okay with that? And I said, uh, what's it going to cost? He said, no, 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 we're doing it for free. I'm like, I'm okay with that. So he puts this up here. Now, this is, again, the, the willing to fail, the willing to ask. I wasn't there when it was up the first time. So that's not me Photoshopped. It was up once, and they said, I know you're getting back on a plane and you're leaving. Maybe you can come do an interview and talk about your book with NASDAQ on Facebook Live. I said, absolutely, next time I'm in New York. So there I am at Facebook Live, and I had the guts to ask because I had nothing to lose. But just before the interview, I said, guys, I was on a plane. Thank you so much when you posted that billboard. Our team loved it. Everyone felt so proud. I was on a plane at that moment. I couldn't actually see it in Times Square. I would have loved to have gotten a photo. Is there any chance you could put it back up? I'm sure you couldn't. And they said, hold on, stop recording. We'll, we'll delay this a couple of minutes. They found the, the picture, put it back up, and they said, we have a minimum of an hour. Is it okay if it's up there for an hour? I'm like, yeah, no problem. So we go out, take a couple of photos. And to me, that felt like, again, the magic of you just don't know what you'll get unless, unless you ask. I want to give you some take-homes. Um, this is a conference, right? It's supposed to give some learning, not just tell stories. So I, I was thinking about, you know, in the spirit of giving, Ryan said in his, in his opening, the spirit of giving. So I put together a list of some links. I'm going to talk about a few things here over the next few minutes. If you want any of this information, just direct message me on Instagram, at Brian Scudamore, and I'll send you, just say something like, we met at the gathering. Just put the word gathering in there, and I'll send you a link with some of these things if they interest you. So... Number one, I, I think my, my entrepreneurial formula, whether there's something that works for you or not as a leader, is embracing WTF and as a leader, being the positive, enthusiastic leader, but also being transparent to say, I made a mistake, I screwed up, but at least I tried. Recognizing and listening to other people's mistakes and failures. We really have embraced this culture at O2E Brands. Someone makes a mistake. They know they're not losing their job for most mistakes. They sit there and they go, okay, I made a mistake. I'm not going to repeat it. Here's what I learned. We value the learning. So please, if you can, value the learning from a WTF mentality. The other part of the formula, so for me, it's WTF, and I, I've got this little triangle that we draw out, kind of like the gathering, but different. Uh, but imagine a triangle like a pyramid. It's got the three principles of the key things we focus on in building a great company. Vision, people, and systems. So for me, vision started that day sitting down on the dock. I didn't know what I was doing. No one taught me to do that. But the power in putting everything down in writing, Owen and I talked about this on the podcast in that glass box today. If you dream it and put it down in writing and look at it frequently, and especially if you share it with your people, they will come to you and say, hey, Brian, you're missing on the top 20 of the 30 metros. You've only got 28. What are we going to do? Or Brian, the Oprah Winfrey thing hasn't happened yet. It took 14 months for the person that made it to happen, not me, make it happen because it was in the vision. Taking the vision from your, from your head. You know, a vision is really something we just see in our mind's eye. We often tell people, yeah, go do this, go do that. Why? It's towards a vision. It's towards a painted picture of where you will go. And I think we learned that a lot today from Doug from, from Airbnb. So if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. You really, I think, 
can understand the power of a vision uh, and, and putting it down in writing. If anyone wants a vision, I'm happy to share our vision with you. That's one of the, the giving links that I'll, I'll send you. Uh, and then you can understand just what one is if you don't. Um, the other one is people. To me, it's find the right people and treat them right. I learned that when I parted ways with those 11 people. They weren't the right people for me. How do you find the right people for you? Hire people that are like friends. We call it the beer and barbecue test. The beer and barbecue test is, would I sit down and have a beer with this person? Anyone that's interviewing, would they sit down and have a beer with that person? Do they like them? Do they find them interesting, interested? Are they good people? Do you just get along? You know, I haven't, I've yet to, to meet someone that, that wants to be your friend that pulls out a checklist and says, so tell me the last time you were a friend and you went out for a beer with someone. We don't do behavioral interviewing questions with friends. I don't know if they really work as much as just sitting down and having a real conversation. Get to know someone, ask what makes them tick. We hire on attitude and train on skill at O2E Brands. And when we do that and we hire people we like, we're, if we're hiring a, a, a chief uh, uh, financial officer, yeah, they need to have their credentials, but we'll let KPMG do that interviewing. We'll interview them on culture. Find the right people, treat them right. The barbecue test and then the, the, so the beer test. The barbecue test is what would they be like at a company barbecue? We hire diversity, introverts, extroverts, all sorts of different people, but do they fit at a barbecue? Do they just seem to blend in? I mean, this group has a fit about it. People come to the gathering because you've got something in common. Same thing with the company. Do people see the vision? Are they there for a reason? And do they connect? So vision, uh, tool for people, and then systems. Every time you fail, take the learning, document it. We, there's a book called, uh, Michael Gerber's book called The E-Myth, The Entrepreneurial Myth, best book I've ever read. And what The E-Myth talks about is people don't fail, systems do. If you have the right recruiting systems, training systems, and operating systems, you hire the right people, you do the right training, you make sure you keep them great and operating great. So systems, we would always take one sheet and a best practice for every single thing we do when we find a better way or our franchise partners find a better way, we create a new system. So systematize your learning and your failure. So vision, people, systems. The one thing I didn't say about people, uh, one last little thing, and we've got a link to it from on YouTube for a meeting that we do every day called Huddle. We bring the entire company together each and every day, seven minutes. It's not me running it. I might run it twice a year. We're building a company of leaders. It's always someone on stage. Our satellite offices all zoom in through Zoom. And we do five things. We share good news. People from the audience, from our team, can all share bits of good news. We talk about our critical numbers. What's driving our business towards our painted picture? What are the metrics? In the news, someone will get up and talk about what's going on in their department driving towards the painted picture. We'll do missing systems and opportunities. And I'm going through this quick, but it's all in our video. Missing systems and opportunities, what's not working? Let's celebrate what's not working and figure out how we fix it because it's a missing system problem, not a people problem. And then the last one is a cheer. When you're building a unique company, you often have people come in who do things differently. And we had this guy, High Gloss, I can't even remember his real name, but he came in one day and he goes, okay, I'm running this huddle. Let's bring it in for the High Gloss cheer. And everyone's like, what's that? And he just made some cheer. So we'll cheer if we were on Oprah or we'll cheer someone's promotion or who knows what, but it's always something. We start with good news, we end with good news and a cheer, and it just kind of seals the deal. It's 2% of our entire day, a seven minute meeting, but so worth the investment because it unifies, 
keeps everyone focused, brings us together, and we have a ton of fun. So those are my take-homes, or your take-homes, takeaways, I don't know. Um, this is the contact me slide, if I can ever help you. I believe that what makes entrepreneurship special is entrepreneurs love to help other people. I think marketers love to help other people. I think we're in a social media world and let's connect more. Uh, you know, a little story, I think in this digital, and yes, I'm putting all the digital stuff up there, but in a digital app-driven world, there's so fewer connections and human connections. So shout out to Ryan. So Ryan comes into my office and we're sitting there, we're chatting, we hit it off big time. And he goes, will you be my friend? I'm like, my seven-year-old, Hugo, often asks that question. And I'm like, that is freaking cool. That is so cool that somebody as an adult asked that question. It made me smile. I said, of course I want to be your friend, man. Let's go have beer. Let's go have lunch. Let's hang out. My son, Hugo, we were in Hawaii and he was out in the pool swimming around and everybody by the end of our franchise meeting we had there and it brought the kids, everyone's like, Hugo, 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 Hugo. Everybody knew Hugo because Hugo went up to people one by one by one and said, oh, hi, want to be my friend? Want to be my friend? Smiling, cute little kid. Everyone wanted to be his friend. Why aren't we as human beings getting out there and saying, hey, you want to be my friend? I mean, I know it could sound a little weird, but it's just like, hey, you want to grab a beer, grab a coffee, let's chat. What are you into? What's going on? Get to know people. There's, there's a lot of this all the time. And it's like, I just, that's my wish. That's one of my wishes. I, and that's part of why I love building my company and our group of businesses, open office environments. There's no private offices. Everybody's connected. There's very few rules because it's building something bigger and better together. That's what drives me. And that's what I love to do. So as I reflect and I think back to that moment 20 years ago when I'm on the dock and I'm writing the painted picture, what's the last thing I want to leave you with? I hope I've helped you buy into the fact that failure is good. It's tough when you're in it, but if you're willing, it will teach you something. Make failure your friend. Because I think that when we are successful, and we all have different definitions and goals of success, if we succeed without hard work, without some ups and downs, it can feel like a hollow victory. But can you imagine talking about your success and sharing your riveting stories with others, thinking about the disappointment, the regret, the longing, the refusing to give up when giving up might have seemed like the best choice you had, but you didn't give up and you made it through. I think there's a big difference between building a living and building a life. My wish for this group is how do we as leaders of brands help our people build bigger, better lives? How do we help our companies deliver bigger, better lives to our customers? So thank you so much for having me. We are going to go to a Q&A. Chris is going to come up on stage, but thank you very much for listening. Join me in the hot seat here, Brian. All right. We're going to get into the, the thick of it here. You didn't um, elaborate on your portfolio of brands. Uh, so these lessons that you have learned from, I think you said it was an 18 or 20 year success story for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, right. is it copy paste and, and the exact same learning curves again, or are they wildly different? The, the worst thing that can happen is you get into a brand, our second brand, we get into Wow One Day Painting about seven years ago, and we thought, oh, I mean, it was an arrogant attitude that we had as leaders. And we came in and said, well, we've done this once before. Duh, we can do it again. And we took Wow One Day Painting, 
which is a concept where we go in and paint someone's home in a day. It's like flash mob painting someone's house. There's no compromise in quality. You just have a number of people that match up with the rooms. And our branding was atrocious. The, the branding for 1-800-GOT-JUNK 20 some odd years ago was good, but we didn't have to have the phone number 1-888-WOW-ONE-DAY as our phone number. I mean, that was just stupid. Um, 800 numbers weren't what they, you know, today weren't what they were then. The colors, it looked like a college painting type outfit. And we just made a bunch of mistakes trying to mimic what we did with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and think we knew it all. Um, but really it wasn't until we completely did a logo redesign, a brand redesign, and a value prop redesign that with some help of smart marketers that the business started to really take off. You Move Me has, uh, has been tough. I mean, the analogy I would use, I've got three kids, but if you think of the four brands being like children, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK is the, I don't know, 20-something getting out in the world. The other brands, Shack Shine is the little baby. Anyone who's a parent and has kids, you see them go through cycles. You go, oh, here it goes again. Here's the teen years. Here's this and that. Brands do the same thing, but it's willing to dive in and say, we haven't seen this before. Why is this happening? Maybe we've made some mistakes in owning up to it. Love the doc story. Love this idea of both pure possibility and the painted picture. What's your advice about how far do we dare dream? You, you talk about you want to be on the Oprah show. You want to be in 30 markets. Um, when you see people follow that wisdom from you, do you think that we don't dream enough or are we more guilty of dreaming too big? I, I don't know if there's limits. So one of our franchise partners, Tom Ritma in San Francisco, one of the early day ones, and he's got, you know, I don't know, 10 franchises now today, 60 million in revenue. And he was a guy that told me uh, in the summer, I was in San Francisco and he said, I got a story for you, but I can't tell it to you yet. And he said, you inspired me to dream big. So we had a meeting with his team and he said, you wanna go fly some helicopters? And I'm like, okay. We show up to the Bay Area, we get in a helicopter, the pilot took off the doors, that's not the WTF that I want to experience. But anyway, so we start flying over the bay. We start hovering for a couple of minutes at the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge has never been shut to traffic, has been shut to traffic four times. Once when it opened, twice when it was the 75th anniversary, third time was for Spider-Man, some filming, and the fourth was for 1-800-GOT-JUNK because Tom Ritma, there we are in the helicopter, 30 1-800-GOT-JUNK trucks start going by. I'm in the helicopter watching traffic stop slowly and get off the bridge. And then I'm like, why are we in a helicopter right now with nobody on the bridge? This feels like a bad thing. Uh, can we leave? And he said, just hold tight one more minute. And these 30 trucks go across. All he did was he asked somebody who was the traffic authority for the Golden Gate Bridge, who happened to be a customer, who happened to be happy and led him up this path. He was trying to close one lane of the bridge to do this little convoy of trucks. Somehow it ended up happening that he closed all four for five minutes, the whole bridge. I couldn't believe that he pulled that off. I mean, I was in the helicopter watching it and I couldn't believe it was happening. And so to me, you ask, you know, a little story, but you ask about limits. I don't know. Walt Disney said, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. Once we do it, it's now possible. What are the limits just self-imposed in our minds? I think so. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, when, or maybe, maybe I don't know, you mentioned your 1-800-GOT-JUNK is your 20-year-old. When in that journey did you feel like, okay, <clears throat> that kid could move out of the house? Like, I've made it, that's sustaining, and I, I'm not now worried about, you know, it's going to be out of business in six months. 
Yeah, so I was at that Entrepreneur of the Year Awards, and I'm not a big award guy, and so I don't want this to sound like an ego thing and why I'm talking about the award, but what, what the most meaningful moment was, was it was a black tie event. You had to wear a tux. I'm sitting down. My dad's beside me, and he's wearing a tux. And, uh, you know, he had never really said anything nice about the business because he was so pissed off that I dropped out of university. <laughs> and so I win the award, and just as I get called up, he leans over and he goes, good job, Bri. And so... Uh, you know, I don't know, 15 years later or whatever it was, it was like, I come sit down at the table. He's like, you made the right call. And I'm like, I know, but he, but it, he needed to be okay with that. And I think that gave me that confidence in, okay, you know, I really did make the right, th right choice if my dad thought it was a good one. A lot of your failures dealt with personnel decisions. Yeah. What do you, um, how do you distinguish between the attributes that make a really great entrepreneur versus the attributes that make a really great employee? I mean, entrepreneurs need help. I mean, they really, they really do. Like every entrepreneur I've talked to, I learned this with Eric Church that I, I had to continue to let go. Each and every day, I had to stop doing the things I was doing because I realized people can do everything much better than I, except maybe vision and some culture stuff. So just let go, let go, let go. And I think entrepreneurs, a trait in them is they can think big, but they can't necessarily execute big. Me building my company to a million dollars, I barely survived it. Building it to 400 plus million, you know, people often say, oh, do you look at your business and where it's come. You must feel so great. I'm like, this isn't my business and my story. This is our story. And it's so many amazing people having worked together to build it. If I tried to build it, I would have messed it up. So character traits and entrepreneurs versus employees. I mean, our, we have entrepreneurial employees. They operate with sort of entrepreneurial spirit, but they want to support entrepreneurs. They don't want to be the entrepreneur. Not everybody wants to run their own business. And that's great because people that run their own business need people that don't want to do that to help make the magic happen. Uh, failure is having a moment. Uh, and, you know, your book is very timely. There's a lot of conversation about it's not failure if you've learned something. Um, why do you think that is? Why, why are we just failing more so we need to placate ourselves and feel better about it? Is this some millennial backlash of mm. kids that were gold-starred their whole life? They don't know how to now cope with failure. Like, why do you think this is so topical right now? I think people are owning up. I think they're letting their egos go aside a little bit and they're just saying, oh yeah, I, I screwed up. I mean, to me, if somebody screws up, as long as they're honest and open about it, as long as they say to someone, this was my mistake and they take ownership, because I think the old school way was people saying, you know, Owen asked me on the podcast today, he said, you fired these 11 people and you said, you're sorry. He found that that, that was unusual. Why did that come naturally? I said, well, it was my mistake. I, I felt bad about it. I was letting these people go. And so I think what needs to happen is people just, I think we're seeing more failures only because people are owning up to it a little bit more. That was a good fail. No, no. Yeah, that, was, that was Ryan's failure. <laughs> it sounded like my voice on your phone is freaking me out. Um, talk to us just for a minute here about, uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, either out of resource uh, restraint or overconfidence, are making a lot of gut decisions. And it's just, I, I, it's my vision, it's my doc moment, uh, and therefore, sometimes they don't let data dissuade them maybe when it should. So how do you balance letting the facts and the realities of the situation versus my gut and my determination? 
data is useful, guts useful, and it's all about balance, right? Everything in moderation, including moderation. I think that the data scientists that we might have in, in the business would say, you know, we only have 70% of the data, we can't make a decision, where the entrepreneur would say, we only have 30% of the, dis the data, let's go make a decision. And so I think it's just blending together and everybody using um, their own experience. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in Blink. You just get this sense, this gut. It's really just rapid processing of all your life's experience. I think there's something to be said for trusting gut. When I got rid of the Starbucks person, there was a lot of gut. There was a little bit of information. Every single franchise partner of ours, if you would talk to them today, they'd, they'd say, thank goodness Brian made that decision and that he took, took a hard decision that no one else saw and did the right thing and trusted gut. We're out of time. Brian, thank you very much. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Brian's story about firing his first 11 employees is just brutal. I mean, I can only imagine what that whole experience must have felt like for Brian as the boss, as well as for the 11 people who were terminated. But the principle that he taught is so true. A brand is only as good as the people and the culture behind it. So if those aren't right, drastic action is sometimes necessary to fix it. I also love Brian's self-awareness about his own abilities and his own limitations as a leader. His search for his perfect complement in a COO is a great example for all of us. We can all go farther and further when we surround ourselves with people who excel where we are weak. You know, the last thing that I'll mention is that I love how Brian aspires to become friends with his employees and to make friends in life. You know, for so many years in my own career, I thought about this expression that it's not about the destination, but it's the journey that matters. But I misunderstood the journey, and I interpreted that quote to mean that we should celebrate a series of milestones or, you know, miniature accomplishments along the way towards a big audacious goal. But because of Brian and dozens of other cult brand leaders that I've had the privilege of associating with, I now think about that quote differently. To me, a more accurate expression is, don't get so caught up in reaching the destination that you fail to enjoy the companions that you're traveling with. It's the people that we work with, the clients that we serve, the bosses that we work for, those are what make work enjoyable. And it's the family and the friends that we make sufficient time for that makes life worth living. 
I agree with Brian's premise that we should have a more healthy relationship with failure. But I hope that the area we fail at least is how we treat others and the friendships that we make along our way. Until next time. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering of Forbes' top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcast at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.